Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast. I'm Conrad Olson, founder and editor-in-chief of Scandinavian Mind. My guest today is Erik Fagerlind, founder of the Swedish streetwear retailer Sneakers and Stuff. During the last two decades, Erik and his co-founder Peter Jansson has transformed their Stockholm-based sneaker store into a global streetwear phenomenon. With a turnover of more than 100 million euro and stores in New York, Los Angeles, London and Tokyo. In this conversation, Eric talks about how sneakers and stuff established credibility in new markets, the future of digital sneakers, what the fashion industry can do for sustainability and why he is stepping down as CEO after 22 years. The Scandinavian Mind podcast is a bi-weekly show about the intersection of lifestyle and technology. Every Wednesday we publish an in-depth interview with an innovator from the worlds of design, fashion, beauty, mobility or tech. And every Friday we publish a panel talk or other behind-the-scenes content from the world of Scandinavian Mind. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to stay updated on the latest news and learn about upcoming talks and clubhouse sessions. Visit scandinavianmind.com slash newsletter. Here now, my conversation with Erik Fagerlind. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Erik Fagerlind. Uh, co-founder of Sneakers and Stuff and the uh, outgoing CEO of, of said brand. Um, Eric, uh, it's so nice to, to have you here. Um, after 22 years, uh, turnover of, I don't know, is it $100 million or something like that? Uh, you are now stepping down as CEO. You have stores all over the world. Uh, starting with with Stockholm, New York, uh, uh, Tokyo, etc. Et um, from my understanding, you wanna you wanna uh, just focus on the creative director part of your work. But you know, given the success of the brand, what took you so long? Why why are you doing this now? <laughs> That's a fair fair question. Um, I think uh, bottom line, the reason why it took so long is. Uh, most likely tied into me not really being trained or schooled uh, or educated as a CEO, uh, which in many cases helps me think outside of the box. But in some cases also forces me to sort of linger on or hold on to something a little bit too long. Mm. Uh, and I think to me, I, I I have always focused more on the creative output of the brand than the... Um, sort of the organization or the financial structure of the company. Uh, and I, from my behalf, that I followed a little bit, perhaps a more American uh, business philosophy in that end. Um, but now as the company grows, there's a few more stakeholders. Um, I think the, uh, the company actually deserves uh, a proper CEO who actually uh, had time to pay attention to all the important things of the uh, company right right so w- what is it that you want to focus on what do you want to do you still want to you you know you don't you, you don't want to abandon the the thing that you built right you want to still work on it no certainly not i think uh one of the things that i uh 
pride myself in that SNS has been able to do over the years is, is change, uh, adapt, adjust. Um, and that, that is what where my main focus is right now uh, to make sure that we adjust the brand uh, to meet the future and the future demand. Um, many things are changing. The consumer is changing. The brands are changing. Uh, the world is changing. And uh, personally, I think that we have a really good uh, opportunity to sort of get ahead of that change and spearhead that change. And that is where my, my focus is right now. Exciting stuff. So I, I want to get into that. I wanted I wanted this conversation to be about change because, you know, from my perspective, I've been you know I'm not a I'm not a sneaker guy. I'm not a streetwear guy. But I've been watching you guys from the sidelines. It's, it's sort of see how you built your brand, how you know you built the culture around the brand, and also how you were early on to to just build a, a digital operation that that you know. Uh, from my understanding, is the majority of the business today is is part is the digital, whereas the physical is more building culture and and doing these activities. Am I right there? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I would say that uh, today, roughly ninety five percent of the business goes. Oh, it's ninety five. Wow. I mean, um, for twenty twenty, uh, which was a little bit different. That's many of the stores were closed, mm. but even pre pandemic, it was about ninety percent. So all right. So when, you know, before we start talking about what's going to happen next, let, let's go back a little bit. When when did you realize that, that this was a shift that you had to focus on, that, that digital was was uh, is going to be the driving force of the business and, and the physical something else? So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's 22 years, so it's very easy to sort of look back and romanticize and mm. like... Um, make up some sort of moments where things shifted. But truth be told, uh, the original idea of SNS was to sell online. Uh, me and Peter, my co-founding partner, uh, we worked in a sporting goods store. And uh, we worked in a sporting goods store, so we had to sort of deal with people coming in just looking for shoes or running shoes or floorball or whatever it mm. was. And we really just wanted to sell sneakers based on looks. Um, so at that time, I remember myself being a little bit tired of being in store and dealing with consumers that didn't really was looking for what I would wanted to sort of offer. Uh, so that was the starting point of SNS, and the uh, original original idea was to build a website and to uh, sell shoes based on looks and not on function. Mm. And uh, then we found a location with huge uh, windows. And both me and Peter were kind of raised in the retail environment. So we've, it was very natural for us to build a store. Uh, and we cannot program a website. So that was very unnatural. So it took a few more months. We found, uh, found a couple of friends, acquaintances that were at the time studying in uh, one of the... Um, first schools of Sweden that um, actually held class in building websites. Mm. So they built our website as a school project and we paid them, I believe it was roughly like 20,000 Swedish, which is like 2,000 euros, which at the time, and still is not much, but it was about 10% of our the capital that we had to begin with. Um, so it was a huge investment on my behalf, but uh, <laughs> but 
And this was, I mean, you have to take that into consideration. This was in 99. That was at a time where it was actually physically possible to visit every website on the internet. Right. So just to put that in perspective, this is pre-Google, this is pre-Facebook, pre-everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was pre-internet pretty much because you only had like dial-up internet. So it was really slow and you had to build lightweight solutions and so on. Uh, so the focus of being digital was always there, but our um, sort of our connection to retail um, was stronger. Mm. And I think for the first ten years of SNS, that was kind of it was never really a conflict, but we knew that we should focus on online. But we couldn't help ourselves, but like getting our fingers back into the store uh, because the store kind of paid off immediately. And online was very much more long-term all the time. So it wasn't until almost 2009 or 10 when we started to sort of really focus. Up until then, uh, the store that we had here in Stockholm had a higher turnover than our online business. Right, right. And, you know, we were were catering to one part of Stockholm, having a higher turnover than catering to the world. Mm. Uh, so, um, but it, it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg. Uh, where do you place your resources uh, in order to grow? Um, and um, yeah, I, I would say around 2009, 2010, that's when the sort of digital evolution really began mm. for us. Well, I'm curious about this balance because, you know, you started when I basically moved to Stockholm about the same. I moved to Stockholm the year after, and you always heard about you know sneakers and stuff and this sort of culture that was around this this store on on Södermalm in in Stockholm. And you know, I I know you had kind of like a bumpy road, and you had to take in some some investors along the way. But I'm curious, you know, when you decided to scale up and you decided to go to other major cities in the world instead of, you know, let's say go to Gothenburg in Sweden or something like that. How, how did you, you know, if you build a culture at one place for 10 years, how do you manage to do that, that, you know, uh, launching in, in, in New York or, or another place? Yeah, I mean, it's um, the will to expand has always been there. Mm. So we uh at first we had this tiny store in Södermalm uh after about a year we outgrew that and we bought out the neighbors so then we had two stores and uh after a couple of more years we opened up just around the corner from here so downtown Stockholm uh and then after roughly 6 9 months after that we opened in Malmö mm. um and then we uh, moved our smaller stores in Södermalm to the bigger locations where we uh, well, we'll take, right now we actually have to move out because they're renovating the building, but we're going to move back to that sort of OG spot in a minute. Um, so the the ambition to expand was always there. And what we found was that by being present in Malmö, we had a higher digital connection to Skåne or Malmö right. than we did to Gothenburg, who is a bigger city. Mm. So we understood that, oh, by having a presence, it makes a difference. Um, But we also saw that Malmö uh, is a smaller city, so you had to scale down. Like the niche consumer group is smaller in a smaller city. Uh, And the bigger the city, uh, not only by percentage, it actually 
outgrows the percentage. So I think it's to me. I I usually use uh, London and and like the punk culture of London. Like if you're into punk in Stockholm, you kind of you know the twenty people, the twenty other people that is into punk. Like <laughs> you get together, but in in London they're kind of all over. You don't even know everyone. Like it's a big. So even though it's it's a much bigger city to start. But subcultures are in percentage also bigger in bigger cities. Mm. That's where you sort of are allowed to be yourself or follow your passion in a much bigger way. So that was the reasoning behind um, going outside of Sweden. That was the reasoning behind because uh, we actually, you're right, we did have a bumpy road. But the bump in the road was around 2004 and five, mm. um, and I usually divide that into the first five years of SNS. We just had fun and went with it. Uh, we did have a business plan uh, for the first year, but we beat that business plan within two months, and we never really made a new one. So we just, you know, sold a pair of shoes and bought two new ones because that's roughly what the margins hmm. are. And it was very cash flow driven. If we could pay the rent and pay salaries and pay the the bills, then we were good. Uh, if we couldn't, then we had a sale. So there wasn't really much of a plan, <laughs> uh, which worked beautifully as long as you grow. But when the growth sort of pans out, uh, then the need for like cost control becomes quite apparent. So it wasn't until then I kind of stepped into this. I had the CEO role, but we didn't, you know, we, we never had any meetings. We didn't really work in that way. No. But in 2004, uh, we found ourselves in, in financial trouble. And that's where I had to step up as CEO and, and sort of understand everything and learn how to bookkeep and take everything back. Uh, and it took us almost five years to tidy that mess up. And that is when we really thought that we're going to need outside um, expertise and skill set more so than the money because we never actually took any money into the company. So uh, we realized that we needed to change the dynamic a little bit. We were two founders. Uh, we needed a little bit more an outside perspective. So and, uh, at that time, uh, two kind of angel investors entered, Jan um, Carl uh, and David. And David was the one of the founders of WSC, mm. uh, who recently went bankrupt, but had a great ride in, in 2000. Um, and Johan Kahl was one uh, leading the investment firm, one of the early investors into WSC. So David and Johan Kahl had gotten to know each other, and they came. Um, we were looking for investors in general to help us uh, build this, and they uh, they had the best sort of solution uh, for for the future. And uh, and was once, that when you decided to go international? After yeah, and that that's when what what we decided to do collectively, the four of us, was really three things, and uh, it was. Um, Expanding internationally, focus on digital growth, and build our own brand. Mm. Uh, and two out of those three things we've done really well for the past 10 years. Uh, one got a little bit left behind, like the opportunity of really owning up and being a brand is far more, far bigger than what we have sort of put into realization uh, Yeah, That's interesting. I mean, I, I know you mean... I, 
from from my perspective, I always seen the brand as super strong, but I also have a local connection to it. So maybe I maybe... think I think a brand is like to define that. What I mean is really doing our own products, right? Creating our own stuff, right? Uh, the brand in some, you're right. That's been pretty uh, consistent and growing, and and the brand awareness. But Interesting. I think at this point, um, skipping ten years of the evolution here, but. Uh, at this point, we need to focus on what we can do with the brand individually, a little bit more independent, mm. um, because we have built our brand in, in collaborations with the Nikes and Adidas and so on. And when they then start to shift strategy, uh, we kind of need to uh, find our own way a little bit. More. They're going more direct to consumer and, and yeah, that's owning in their, their own main, thing. That's yeah. in their main strategy. So let's so. go back to my, my my original question. I'm curious about this because this is fascinating to me. You're moving into these, you know, big iconic cities. You're a small little brand from Sweden. You're establishing yourself locally. Just hands on, how do you build culture in, in other cities? Did you have like a, the, the street credibility uh, already, you know, globally? Was was people aware of you? But when you come to, you know, Venice Beach or, or, or these other cities, yeah, what happens a, then? We have a following. Um, but, um, I mean, the first city where we opened was in London. Um, when we, when David and Jakob joined, which was in 2011, we discussed expansion and i remember i think they actually saw it like let's do scandinavia but my argument was that there's no city bigger than stockholm in scandinavia like uh, all kudos to copenhagen but like copenhagen as a city is about the size of gothenburg hmm. if you take copenhagen as a region yeah bigger but as the city center is is not big so um we uh, we actually said from the beginning that we want to go to New York because that is, to us that's the birthplace of SNS. That's where we drew all the inspiration and that's where we went quite a bit in the nineties. So that's where we wanted to make an impact, uh, and that's also the reasoning is a little bit if you're going to be uh, meaningful and have sort of create yourself a platform within this industry, then there is a couple of cities that has a lot more leverage than Stockholm and, and all the Scandinavian cities and New York being one of them. But uh, since we're rooted in Europe, it was a little bit complicated to just go there and just say, hey, we're here. <laughs> so uh, we um, we uh, decided that the biggest city that we have fairly close by was London. Uh, at that time, we didn't have any business in London, which triggered me anymore like more than 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 if we had so it's it was kind of the challenge and a lot of pushback on like why london uh why not go somewhere else and my reasoning was that if we if we're trying to do this we should try to do this in a big city as london if we can't make it there then what's the point of trying altogether Mm. then we can scale down or scale back or whatever but uh, the ambition was to to go to London, but you're right. Like, um, how do you build that sort of connection? We did that and and still do that, very much led through product, of course. But uh, soon realized that you need to sort of create these local touch points and local energy, and then uh, we looked back into what sort of established us here in Stockholm, uh, 
And sure, it was the uniqueness of the product. That was great. Service level in store, that was added on. But it was everything else around. So all the parties, all the events, all the workshops, like all the things that you do that doesn't necessarily sell a product. So the more things you do that you're not trying to sell a product, the more brand building it is. It's it's simplifying quite mm. a bit. But mm. So we started looking into that and... Um, and immediately, I mean, we had our big party when we opened in 99 here in Stockholm. And we called that dress code sneakers because you weren't allowed to get into the club if you uh, had sneakers. So we uh, started a, a club where you can only get in if you had sneakers, which was uh, fun at the time, but now kind of pointless exercise. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then uh, sort of rolling that theory out in, in London, um, and then uh, moving on to Paris. Uh, and we saw quite early on that um, by opening in London, our, our online business to the UK grew with 500% the first year and 450% the second year and continued to grow and hmm. quite soon surpassed Sweden as a market. Um, and with that in mind, we then went on to Paris. It was like, yeah not that far away, it's a completely different country and, and a little bit of a different culture, but what SNS is about is really um, obviously sneakers, but youth culture, I would say, uh, and some specific lanes within youth culture. And youth culture is, uh, there are variations, but um, there is youth culture in every city. So you sort of have to tap into that and understand what drives the youth in this specific city. And um, the more time, I think, I don't know what to blame, algorithms or whatever it is, but the, the world is getting smaller. We all listen to the same music and right. see the same trends at the same time and so on. So um, it it's probably become easier to expand international from that end mm. now than it was 20 years ago. Well, especially with something as strong as, as streetwear and that, that type of cu- culture and... and you know, I I come from you know world of magazines and editorial, and to me the it's it's kind of this the streetwear uh, avenues that have done the best in sort of translating into a digital world. If you think of like high, high you know high beast and high snobite and the way they build their brands and and the way they sort of uh, you know work with with editorial um, content and 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 the, the commercial side of it and you know you know, balancing product stories with these sort of values-driven stories. I, I really find that that's where it's happening. And and I'm curious because one of the, one of the parts of, of your business has also been to be this kind of launch platform, this kind of almost like an editorial window for the, for the brands. You mentioned before Nike uh, and you're, you, I think you've done more than, you know, 200 collaborations during these, uh, uh, these times. But how, how have you developed that part of the business? You know, brands using sneakers and stuff as a launch platform for their own yeah. instead of just seeing you as a sales avenue. I think, uh, I think brands never saw us as a sales avenue. We were in the early days okay. uh, of Nike Sportswear, Adidas Originals, they didn't exist when we opened. Mm. Uh, but there were variations of it, in, in especially in New York, um, that even ever since the 80s, like in cities like Baltimore or New York, where the Air Force One kind of like grew as a lifestyle icon. Um, but prior to that, Adidas Superstar would run DMC. Like it was, it was taking sports into the streets. 
Um, so I think um, when it comes to Sweden, where we uh, obviously started, um, Sweden is a pretty small market. Um, and in the 90s and the 80s, when all these brands started to grow and roll out, there was uh, a distributor somewhere in Europe, and then there was an agent somewhere in Scandinavia, and there was a sales rep or sales team in Sweden, and then there was like an office in Stockholm. So many people along the way that needed mm. to sort of make money on this product. So they streamlined the assortment quite a bit. Uh, it was all like black or white, functional shoes, price point driven. So. Uh, which I guess is kind of natural at the time. But especially in the 90s, from a sneaker point of view, there was a lot of colors. There was a lot of, like, um, starting to stand out. Uh, NBA had this rule where you can only have black or white shoes. And the uh, the famous sort of um, point made from, from Nike and Michael Jordan on wearing a, a red, mm. black, and white shoe, which was forbidden by the rules so they had to pay a fine for every time you wore that shoe and so on <laughs> this and this was in 85 so but it, so it took a long time yeah. for it yeah. to sort of spread um but i think the learning for for me and for sns was we we started going to new york in the 90s uh picking up shoes in in stores hustling carrying them home uh, not paying any custom fees or like carrying them in bag and at that time you were actually allowed to have uh, two bags uh, were, that was allowed to weigh to 32 kilos alright so you had like 64 kilos of shoes <laughs> to bring home and you went like two or three people there's a lot of shoes yeah so um, we started in that end uh, we started going, me and Peter started going for ourselves and then friends caught on and mm. started asking like, hey, buy me a pair, buy me a pair. And um, what we realized was that there was a demand for buying on looks, but the brands in Sweden and Scandinavia and Europe as a whole hadn't really come to that point yet. But I think the realization for me from a business standpoint was when uh, things started to go a little bit sour because we, uh, we established connections with Nike in 99. We started working with Adidas in like 2000. Started working with all these brands. Uh, and they were happy to serve us. I thought um, they were happy because we paid the bills and so on. But in around 2004, uh, when we couldn't pay our bills, uh, they still supported us uh, quite a bit. Some of the brands went way out of the way. Reebok, who at that time wasn't owned by Adidas yet, uh, they uh, flooded our warehouse and saying like, "Hey, they're gonna they own the stock until it's sold." Mm. So it was a non-risk solution for both parts. Uh, and I got curious on like, why are they doing this? Uh, because we didn't have much. Like we had a turnover. It was like 25, 30 million. It wasn't that much for these brands. It wasn't right. that much. Uh, and I realized that they were doing it because they needed us. Uh, they needed us to spearhead this sort of like development within mm. uh, sneaker culture uh, in the world. So we started to find creative ways on like renting out the windows, uh, renting out the space in store, or like doing activations and having the brands pay for it and so on. 
because and and ultimately we still like we owed Nike so much money that it would take us years to pay back. But they still delivered. They still sort of like and we built plans together. And I found myself having weekly calls with the CFO of Adidas. And to me, it was that we're a tiny company. Like why, why do you care? Like you could just put us out of business. Because you had this strong connection to the to the target uh, yeah. audience. Yeah, we had uh, we had established ourselves. We we were in pole position. Mm. So at that time, if if the world proved our business model wrong, mm. then they wouldn't necessarily have such a strong case versus the bigger boxes. Uh, in Sweden, that would be like in the sports stadium or whatever. Mm. But, so that that was the learning uh, curve that they actually need us, and not necessarily us us, but they need stores like us. There's another you know aspect of this strong connection to your your audience and, and the community. And, and last year you you did a huge mural in in New York with the word uh, vote on it. And uh, you know it's it's you know you can look survey after survey speaks to that you know you know emerging generations of consumers are much more values driven and much more you know opinionated and expect brands to be more uh, opinionated uh, it, have you always seen this in your community is or is this something that's has grown stronger uh, we have always is a strong word probably uh, we have always leaned in that direction mm. but not in any not as organized as we are now um we uh, we have done charity drives for unicef like mid 2000s we have done a charity drives through like music yelp and 10 years ago in sweden like we've done bits and pieces uh but not in this outspoken way uh we've done it because like we wanted to do it mm. uh, i think uh, I think 2020 especially, but even prior to that, you can see it in the sort of uh, shift um, from a, a sustainability point of view, an environmental point of view. It's already started, you know, 17, 18, like uh, it grew. Uh, and first, I would say it was pretty much ignored by brands, companies in general. But to me, it was a big sort of like seeing... Um, seeing the masses move out in the streets. And you can look at that from two perspectives. You can look at, uh, you can shame the brands for sort of pivoting towards that uh, and not doing it before. But uh, to me, it's sort of like the purpose that it creates um, is far more important than, than shaming whoever didn't do it first. Mm. Uh, so for us doing like the Vogue campaign, um became quite natural we had that wall uh and it was a team in the u.s who spearheaded that conversation they wanted so much to do something and uh, uh we already started to engage uh, a little bit more through black lives matter uh, we actually started prior to the black lives matter surge in, in june after george floyd uh, we started uh, already during the pandemic on like how do you how do you keep sane when you're locked in? Like here in Sweden, we we were living our life not as normal, but it was a lot more free. In Paris, in the U.S., it was hard lockdowns. Mm. Uh, 
So we pivoted our sort of what used to be the bar, what used to be the events. We tried to pivot that towards more of a digital output and um, encourage and like talk about mental health and like all these aspects. And then Black Lives Matter uh, surged and uh, felt um, felt like we had like an opportunity to use our platforms uh, to make an impact. And I think that's to me it was a learning curve because uh, yeah we've been here for a long time. Sometimes it's very difficult to understand your impact. So it's you excuse yourself with good intention. Hmm. You don't necessarily look at the impact that you have. And realizing that we have this platform, we have this following, uh, we have you know, uh, 2.4 million downloads of our app. Uh, we have a social media following, that's great, but social media is somewhere, right? We have um, 25 million visitors to our website. We can use that to, to uplift others. Um, we might not always be able to sort of speak up on everything ourselves, but we can point at others who do. So the Vogue campaign came through um, uh, with Iraq being the artist who we had relationship uh, since since he worked with uh, A Life and we met in um, at Adidas uh, mm. at some sort of event where they pulled all these stores together, and um, he had a shoe coming out with Adidas. So Adidas actually also stepped up and and helped finance this uh, without putting their names to it or demanding everything anything for it. So. Uh, so it was a lot of things around that, and, and you can definitely see that that is here to stay. So speak, speaking about impact, uh, you mentioned sustainability before, and you know obviously the 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 whole of the fashion industry ha- have huge challenges when it comes to you know uh, more more sustainable transformation. So I have, this is a two part question uh, be- before we wrap up. But I'm curious, you know, obviously the the sneaker uh, you know part of of the industry, obviously a lot of uh, you know plastics and rubber and, and, and you know, all that. I'm curious where you see the development going, uh, both in terms of the the actual production and resell and so forth but also the notion of these sort of digital sneakers that that is emerging as well so uh, where, where do you see the sustainability discussion going in the sneaker uh, community mm, I think it's it's interesting I see uh, in general the big brands who uh, who has a lot of the um, responsibility I suppose but also at the end of the day the consumer holds the power Um that's a little bit unfair because sometimes you cannot afford to sort of uh, pay the ups, upcharge uh, for a sustainable version of what you want. Uh, but the development that we see the brands are leaning towards on like trying to work towards it, they're far from perfect. Uh, but uh, I see a, a big development within whether it's Nike or Adidas. Or even here in Sweden, like H and M, taking a lot of you know steps towards sustainability. In ways, um, it's very easy to, to sort of beat them down and to being like hypocritical. Mm. But to me, it's like what what you're asking them to do: stop existing. Uh, I think the consumer has the power to make these brands stop existing. But uh, I think the companies has a responsibility, and and what I see now. Is it fast enough? Probably not. But you can definitely see a focus. I cannot make up my mind up if they're doing it again, like because it's the right thing to do. 
they're probably doing it because they saw a million people come out in the streets and protest against you know the change in, in the environment so yeah. but that's my point like is it good intent i don't know they're trying to make money at the end of it and they know that if they don't crack this they're going to be out of business and we might be out of a planet so it's in everybody's best interest but that said, we're not going to kid ourselves. We're in fashion, whether that be street fashion or, or high fashion or whatever. We all sell product that nobody really needs. So let's, let's not kid ourselves on that matter. What we try to do on our behalf is make sure that we serve people as local as possible. Uh, that is part of our sort of geographical expansion. How do we serve people in Japan? Like, why do we... Uh, ship stuff from Asia on a boat to Sweden and fly it back to Asia. That's mm. uh, that's not a good, sustainable way. So by opening up a warehouse in, in Asia, we actually minimize a lot of um, transportation, which is a step in the right direction. It doesn't solve anything. But we are all, I think, everybody's working and tinkering on and trying to sort of pull their part of this um, so that that's the sort of evolution that I can see. Um, and, and what do you think about the notion of digital as a substitute for for um, you know at least some of the sort of you know collector aspect of of sneakers? I mean, people many people collect sneakers not to wear them, but you know they have yeah, much sure. more than they need to wear. So is there is there a future where that that sort of um, you know, brand connection or cultural connection can be transformed into something digital. Is there a SNS NFT coming around the corner? I, I we don't have any NFTs planned as such, but we do, of course, then see uh, to put the energy on the digital and give the experience digitally. But I think what uh, what we haven't solved as as well what NFT hasn't solved yet is. Um, when you do it in your phone, it only speaks to one part of your brain. So by having an object, it speaks to other aspects of your mm. brain and, and your emotions and so on. I am pretty sure that there will be a way to solve that digitally in the future. I don't see it today, but there will definitely be some evolution in that end, in that aspect. Uh, and I think it's interesting. I think uh, it's, it's, I'm curious to follow, like, uh, that was Gucci, uh, releasing a sneaker that Alessandro designed. It was like this thing about it. And, uh, to me, it's kind of, I never saw myself, and, and I know a lot of people internally laugh at this, but I never saw myself as a sneaker collector. I'm a sneaker user. Uh, I just have access to way too many at this point. So <laughs> like it, it, turns, it looks like I'm a collector, but I'm not collecting. Uh, there are people out there that really, truly collects. And... It's not fair to them to call myself a collector. Uh, and as a user, it's difficult with NFT. Uh, as a collector, yeah, I would say that give it 10 years, it will be a completely different technical discussion and discussion in general. Okay, so so last question. Now you're moving into this new role. I'm not sure it, it has op- opened uh, yet or, or started yet, but... Uh, but uh, w- what do you aim to do? What 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 do you really want to do in this uh, new role? Is it isolated creative director or is it a bigger... Um... I think it's difficult to sort of draw a line on what what how, what is this change. Uh, one part of me can say that I more or less always acted as a creative director more than a CEO. Mm. 
But another part also sees as a as a company that now has like a hundred and thirty million dollar turnover, uh, there are obligations and responsibilities and expectations on a CEO that I might not uh, feel that I want to live up to, or that I I don't need that, uh, or there are other people who are better skilled than me uh, on that. But the creative aspect to me is uh, there's uh, what my focus is right now is trying to pivot SNS as a brand into what that means. Part of our expansion and, and challenges with the expansion is that we never really wrote a brand book. We just like you need to live it to be it mm. sort of mentality. But uh, then opening up in New York, LA, Tokyo, uh, the living it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, so right now it's kind of like sharpening up onto what what we can be as a brand and what we can be as a designing brand and, and what collections we can put up. And that is where my focus is. Eric, it's going to be great following the journey, perhaps for another 22 years. Uh, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Scandinavian Mind podcast with me, Conrad Olsen. This show was edited by Eric Sedin. If you liked what you heard, follow us on your preferred podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To get the latest news, insights and invites to upcoming events, sign up to our newsletter. Just go to scandinavianmind.com to become part of our movement.